excited about so we're going to do we are going to do the first session on free will which is actually the topic of Rabbi Tatz's new book which is not here but please get it because it's, it's excellent um, and then we're going to have a 10 minute break um, which we can have some lachayims we can talk also about some exciting things coming up for, for sold and, uh, and schmooze and then we're going to do a second session on getting high and staying high Na naturally um, so uh, without further ado, it's our honor to welcome Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz from South Africa, now England. First of all, thank you very much to Jackie for this uh, chance to, for the work she does for you in general, and this chance to study and learn how to speak English correctly. <laughs> The question of free will is really the central issue because the defining characteristic of a human being is free will. Let me try to paint the picture of this subject. You're very welcome to ask questions. I'm happy to answer if I can. But you'll see that this really defines the essence of what we are and also is a very important framework for approaching life in terms of personal life agenda, also in terms of one's own unique situation, advantages, disadvantages, problematic elements of your life, things you struggle with that aren't your fault. You see a very, very broad framework here for dealing with almost everything. Give me a chance to try to paint this picture broadly, and then please feel free to ask what's of interest to you. The essence of the human being, not Jewish, just human, is free will. The classic way to put that, the Torah calls it the Tzalem Elokim. Tzalem Elokim means that we are created in a divine image. And the question really, what does it mean that the human is a divine image? So the Kabbalists have lots of layers to this and lots of, lots of applications, but perhaps the most essential is that we have free will. Where we reflect God is the fact that He does whatever He wants because He wants to, with no constraints, and we can do whatever we want. <coughs> There's nothing else in the universe like that. No animal, no molecule, no planet, nothing ever does what it's not supposed to do except you. I mean, I'm sure you never do what you're not supposed to do, but like mere mortals, not black belts like you, occasionally do what they're not supposed to do. Only humans have that option. All the rest of the universe follows the rules and laws that govern it. And only humans can make choices. I'm not talking about technical choices. Animals can choose whether they're going to sleep here or there. But you also choose whether you're going to wear this pair of socks or that pair of socks. Machines can be programmed to make selections. I don't mean that. I mean something much higher. <clears throat> and therefore, what defines us as having an aspect of the divine is that we have free will. The Kabbalists put it something like this. We occupy the interface between an angelic and an animal world. Above us is an angelic world, spiritual beings. And they have no free will because they see too much. And beneath us is an animal world that has no free will because it sees too little. An angel has free will, technically, but would never make a wrong choice. It sees too clearly. An angel has the kind of free choice that you have to walk into a fire. Do you have free will to walk into a fire? Well, you could, but you wouldn't. Do you have free will to jump off a tall building? Well, you could, but you see yourself becoming part of the scenery, you know, so clearly <laughs> that you wouldn't do it. And therefore, and therefore, if you see clearly enough, you know, very paradoxically and amazingly, this means we are free only because we're confused. Why do you do negative things in a relationship? Why do you hurt someone's feelings in a relationship? Because you think, well, they're not that sensitive and they hurt my feelings and by the time you finished, it's a big mitzvah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but if you saw clearly the immaturity involved and the damage, you would never do it. If you felt the pain that they feel, you'd never do that. So we don't see clear. An angel sees so clear, would never choose wrongly. And an animal sees so little... An animal sees only the immediate material, sensual version of reality and therefore has no real choices. So we pitch between the two. We feel the pull towards the angelic, the noble, the spiritual, the refined. We feel the pull towards the sensual, the earthy, the material. And in that zone of tension we live. So far so good? There's an incredibly beautiful way that the Medrash puts it. 
The Medrash says that when, when Hashem, when God was about to create the human being, He said, Na'ase Adam, let us create the human. What's wrong with that statement? Let us create man. Who's us? If there's one thing we fixated on in Judaism, it is that God is one. Why would he express himself in the plural? And there are many layers to the answer to this question. But one beautiful one is the Medrash says this. Before Hashem created the human, <coughs> he consulted all his midot. He consulted truth and justice and charity and mercy. Some, all, the, all the elements that he wanted to construct in the human. Some said create people, man, people, humans, and some said don't. Truth said, do not create humans, I'll be full of lies. Stock at charity said, create humans, I'll give charity. Some said yes, and some said no. While these characteristics, while these traits, these character traits were locked in an almighty, unresolvable conflict, while they were arguing, God created the human being. The childish understanding of this madras is that since they couldn't resolve the conflict, God ignored them and created the human being anyway. That's not what the sages are saying. What they're saying is this. He asked for advice, and he took it. What was their advice? An unresolved, incredible conflict, and that's what he created. That's the human being. The human being is a war zone, a battle zone between warring motivations. You'd like to do something that's to your advantage, you'd like to do something to help somebody else. You'd like to do something noble and refined, you'd like to do something dishonest and you know, <coughs> cut a corner. It's that battle zone that defines free will. So we are creatures of conflict, and we are here to resolve or live within that conflict. However, can we switch off our phones? Can we do that? We have the free will to do that? Can we? I know it's difficult, but this is first exercise in self-control. Um, our free will is seriously constrained. And to make a picture of this, I would say our free will is limited horizontally and vertically. Horizontally, I mean, look at all the areas of your life. Your marital situation, your financial situation, your health. <coughs> your academic status it's axiomatic in Jewish thinking that you are free in only one of those areas there's only one zone of your life where you can manifest free will where would you say that is? yes it's an axiom in Judaism that you're free only in the moral or ethical zone it's only in that classic battle between the good self and the childish or, or, or selfish what we call yetzer tov yetzer ra that means the the, it's the ethical or moral zone where there's a, a, a battle between good and bad. Other areas are axiomatically not part of our free will. For example, let's, for example, money. Let's take money. So we have a belief that the first day of the year, Rosh Hashanah, the first morning or the first day, what you will earn that year is predetermined. Nothing you can do will change one cent of that. Right? That's our belief. Of course, you can damage yourself financially without limit. You could ruin yourself financially. That's immoral, irresponsible, and it's totally in your free will. But you cannot guarantee an income no matter what you do. Right? No matter what your profession, no matter what your job. You cannot guarantee an income. I don't think you need me to tell you this. If you look around the world, you'll see people who are very smart, very well educated, always make the right moves and the right decisions, never earn any money. And there are others who are total idiots and very rich. I happen to know a few, I can assure you. Um, the two are not connected. I saw an interview with Mr. Bronfman. Bronfman's a Canadian Jew. He's a multi-billionaire. He owns half of Canada. There's another Jew who owns the other half. But anyway, Mr. Bronfman owns half of Canada. And I saw an interview with him. They said, Mr. Bronfman, how did you become so wealthy? So he said, when I was 10 years old, I bought an apple for one cent and I sold it for two cents. Then I bought two apples and I sold them for four cents. Then I bought a box of apples and I sold them for a dollar. Then my grandfather died and left me $61 million. <laughs> And that, that's an authentic Jewish perspective. In other words, <laughs> you make your effort, but not necessarily connected to the, to the result. So money, we do not believe, is a function of your free will. Take health. I happen to be a doctor, but you don't need to be a doctor to know that you can make all the right health moves and become disastrously ill. Ask Jackie. Right? You can have medical stuff that is totally out of your control. You can diet and exercise and become disastrously ill. You can harm your health without limit. You could kill yourself. That's immoral. It's a sin. It's an error. It's in the moral zone. You have full control. But no matter what you do, you cannot guarantee health. It's out of your free will. How long you live, by the way, according to Kabbalah. Are we allowed to mention Kabbalah? <laughs> <laughs> according to Kabbalistic teaching, you're born with a thing called a kates. A kates means an end point of your life that you cannot extend. 
It's a principle that we are not told when that moment is, so there's no practical significance. But you're born with a certain case. No matter what you do, you cannot surpass that time. You can lose life. You could commit suicide. You could smoke. You could speak lush and horror. You can do bad stuff spiritually. You lose life. If you've lost life, you can regain it. Helping a young couple get married, for example. That mitzvah adds life. Paying, not paying the worker on time deducts life. There, you can do tshuva, but you can't exceed the time that you were given, right? And that is, that's not amenable to free will. And many areas of your life, right? A marriage, choice of a marriage partner, a young man is thinking about marriage. He has limited, he's limited in terms of whom he can, young men cannot possibly explore a relationship with every woman on earth, even though many young men seriously try. <laughs> but uh, be that as it may, your options are limited. What's presented to you as options in your life is limited. So when you look at your health and your wealth and all these areas of your life, we do not waste time pushing those areas. You have to make a responsible effort in these areas. You want to earn a living? You have to do something responsible and normal. You want to make, get married? So look nice, smell nice, smile, you know, and uh, you know, meet someone who's more or less the opposite sex. You know. uh, <coughs> yeah. But um, that's what we do, right? But pushing these areas excessively, <coughs> doing too little is irresponsible. <coughs> doing too much is a lack of faith. So balance, that's what you have to do. But then that's not what you're here for. Those are the tools. What you're here for is to develop inwardly, develop morally, spiritually. That's where your free will is applied. And there, there's no limit. It's all up to you. So when we talk about free will in Judaism, we're not talking about which flavor dessert you're going to eat, which pair of socks you're going to... That's technical stuff. Machines can be programmed to make those selections. We're talking about building yourself inwardly. And in English, you'd say moral or ethical. We're talking about good, good against bad. So far, so good? Clear? Okay. But there's a more interesting concept, I think, and that is our free will is limited vertically. And this is such a classic idea that if you don't know this, you are not Jewishly educated. Our free will is pitched at a certain point on a vertical scale. And that's the classic idea that's called Nikudas Habakira. Nikudat Habakira. <coughs> the point of free will. This was classically taught by Rabbi Desla, one of the great thinkers of the last generation. You can look it up in his classic work, which in English is called Strive for Truth. But the notion is, and this is worth tremendous effort and focus, because <coughs> as a human, as a wife, as a mother, <coughs> as, as a teacher, <coughs> this is essential. And that is on a vertical scale, you are free only at one particular point on a vertical scale at any point in time. So let's take an example. Let me try to explain. Let's take one dimension of your life. The Gemara says, for, exa for example, we have two daily temptations two routine temptations. One is the male-female sensual attraction area that's given to, to problems, and the other is some form of theft, uh, taking something in some sense that doesn't belong to you. <coughs> Let's take that as an example. <coughs> you can be guilty of theft or tempted in theft on many layers. For example, let's take a vertical scale. Imagine a person at the bottom of the scale. That's somebody who hangs out on the street and his daily activity is violently mugging little old ladies. He hits them on the head with a brick and he runs off down the street with their money. Where's that person's free will pitched? Says Rabbi Desler, the next time that man attacks a little old lady and takes her money, if he decides that instead of killing her, he's only going to crack her skull, he has made a tremendous moral advance. When he dies and gets up to the next world, he's going to be rewarded for that. When you die, and you get up, look, I don't know you personally, but I presume that most days you're not hanging out on the street hitting little old ladies with a brick, most days? Good. Most days. Good. So when you die and God says to you, what did you achieve in the world? And you say, I never smashed any little light. You think he's going to say, shkayach amazing? No, it's not your problem. You are being tested at your level. That fellow is being tested at his level. Why he's operating at that level needs thought. We'll talk about that. But you're being tested at your level. This is very scary. This means that all of you sitting here are guilty of stealing. Stealing. Theft. What? That's right. That's right. That's right. How many people in this room have ever had a job working for someone else? Okay. You're sitting there working, and you make a private phone call. Two counts of theft against you. Your employer paid for the call, and you spent 10 minutes speaking to your mother when you've been paid a salary to work. What do you mean you don't steal? You don't hit ladies over the head with a brick, but that's not where you're being tested. And let's say you work in an environment where you tacitly accepted that you can occasionally make private calls. Fine. How about half an hour on the phone? How about long distance? How about coming a little late to work or leaving a little early? What do you mean you don't steal? Let's say you'd never do that. There's an Avera called Knebas Das. Knebas Das means when you mislead someone, there's theft of the mind, even if you didn't harm them at all. You're sitting down to dinner. You have an expensive bottle of wine that you're about to open with your dinner. Unexpectedly, a friend of yours walks in. 
you say to your friend, you know what, I'm going to open this wine in your honor. Lying. You didn't harm them, but it's an avera. It's theft of the mind, and it's a total transgression. It's way more subtle than hitting little old ladies over the head. But you're more accountable if you're at that level. You visit someone in hospital. On your way out, you see someone else who's ill. You didn't know they were ill. So you see them, you walk into the room, and you say, I came specially to visit you. Lying. You did a mitzvah too. It's another issue. But there's a theft of this dishonesty, right? Can I give you a homework exercise? For every correct answer, Jackie's going to buy you a whiskey. <laughs> or cocaine, whatever you're into in salt. Um, here's an exercise in Geneva Stars. This was asked of one of the great rabbis in Israel some time ago. <clears throat> this is what happened. A fellow in New York City walked into a bank, and he asked the manager for a bank loan. So the manager said, uh, we do loans, how much do you want? So the guy said, I want $200. I'm going abroad for three months, I need $200. The manager said, are you serious? That's like a tiny loan, you're going to pay 20% interest? Is this for real? He said, yeah, you advertise loans. So they started filling out the forms. When they got to collateral, the manager said to him, what are you going to leave us as security? So the guy said, here are my car keys. The car's outside in your parking lot. My car's worth a lot more than $200. I don't need it. I'm going abroad. When I come back from the trip, if I fail to pay my loan, you sell the car. And managed this fine. True enough, guy went abroad, spent three months abroad, came back, walked into the bank, paid $240 and left. Manager called him back and said, what was all that about? The guy said, where else could I get parking for three months? <laughs> okay, is that Geneva Stars? On the one hand, total deception. On the other hand, he took a loan, he paid the interest, he left value. That's an interesting moral question. But it's a question at this level of refinement. If you told the fellow on the street, mugging little old ladies, he'd think, that's too wonderful, why didn't I think of that? He wouldn't see the moral problem. Is the point clear? The point is you've been tested at your level of difficulty. And this is very scary. One meaning of this is that you can never compare yourself to anyone else. You can't compare yourself to someone else. You don't know what they're dealing with. I'm not talking about a statutory legal comparison. Of course you have. There's legal standards. I'm talking about the inner work. The inner, the inner merit, the inner work of self-construction. That's only in proportion to the difficulty. In a Jewish school, the teacher never reads out, in an authentic Jewish school, the teacher never reads out grades in the class. Because the teacher reads out grades, one kid gets a better grade than somebody else, the kid feels like a failure, maybe try it harder. If you'd ever like to be depressed, go to a junior school prize giving. Little, a sea of little seven-year-old faces, and they start giving out the prizes. There's always one problematic, obnoxious kid who probably had his brain irradiated when he was a fetus, who gets all the prizes. You know that kind of kid. Next to him is sitting a little seven-year-old whose heart is breaking. Because he'd give anything to come home with a prize, and he's not going to get one. That's not education, that's assassination. They've all got to get prizes. When they're 15 and 16 and 17, you can be brutally unfair. Life's unfair, kids have to learn. But not when they're seven and don't understand that. You can never compare yourself to anyone else. The Talmud says that when you die, you see no one else. You see no one else. All you Actually, it's not completely true because it says husband and wife are bundled into each other for eternity. It's good news for some of us, a little distressing for others. <laughs> but that's, uh, make, make sure you marry someone you like. You'll be stuck with him for a long time. And the reason for that, of course, is that marriage is really a reconstitution of an original male-female oneness, right? You're marrying the person that you were once one with in the spiritual world. That's what marriage is. It's called Bashir. Bashir means looking for that other, that other <coughs> half of your own original soul. We'll speak about that later. But what you see in the next world is who you are, stripped of all facade and illusion, and what you could have been. The standard of comparison is what you could have been, not somebody else. It's, it's irrelevant to compare you to somebody else's potential. Does this make sense? And therefore, and therefore, to know how you are doing spiritually, you have to know where you are. Feeling superior to somebody else who's got a whole different set of circumstances and challenges is completely irrelevant. That fellow mugging people on the street might be doing better than you. At his level. And therefore, to know who you are, you have to know your level. How are you coping with the givens in your life? Now, that's what's meaningful spiritually. Now, the next question, of course, is why are you operating where you are? Why is he operating down there mugging people on the street? And you 
thinking of making the occasional phone call at work or saying a word that's not completely. By the way, every word you say has a jury standard. You know that? Every word you say has a jury standard. Every word you say has to be completely true, completely kind, and completely necessary. Anyone here who can say that every word they ever say is completely true, completely kind, completely necessary? Probably not. It's a very high standard. But depending on your refinement and your self-development, the standards are incredibly high. And as a mother or a team leader or a teacher, you need to know who you're working with. What is this person capable of? The reason for grades in a school is for the teacher to call the child over and to say, for you, that grade wasn't good enough. Now compare the child to some other child, it's completely irrelevant. Kids don't understand this, by the way. Kids always think things have to be completely fair. Right, kids? Why do you get a bigger piece of cake than me, right? Oh, it's always like that. You know, you come home with your two kids, you buy this one a pink one, this one a blue one. For sure, he'll want the pink and she'll want the blue. And if you both buy them, both the blue one, they'll, well, they'll want each other's. The right answer for a parent is, when, the, when your child says to you, why does he get a bigger piece? Why is his bedtime different than mine? The correct answer is, in this house, we don't get the same. In this house, each gets what he needs. They can't answer that. <laughs> Believe me, I'm a parent, I, I can tell you. So. <laughs> right. I have lots of experience. So... Um, that's the answer. God doesn't give us each the same. He gives each of us what we need. And therefore, the standard is your own standard. Now, let's take the next step. Why is your level where it's at? Why is that fellow grappling with mugging people on the street and you grappling with such, something much more refined? And again, the answer is very scary. It might not be his fault. But it's somebody's fault. Meaning, on this vertical scale of free will, where you're operating might not be your fault. But it's irrelevant. Your job is only to reach perfection at your level of challenge. But what's your level of challenge? That might be your parents' fault. It might be God's fault. Let me explain this clearly. First of all, you know that when you do an action in the world, it has consequences. And the consequences are yours. You're accountable for them. You walk in the morning, you see one of your friends. You should give a warm greeting to this friend, but you're a little wrapped up in your own thoughts and you're a little bit offhand. She gets upset, she gets depressed, she has a bad day. The bad day leads to bad stuff. The bad stuff leads to other bad stuff, and all the damage is yours. You're accountable. That's where the process began. Here's a man speaking to his business associate on the, on the phone. His four-year-old son's playing under the table. Man says to his friend, well, it's not 100% accurate, but let it go. Little boy hears his father say, you can take liberties with the truth. On the basis of that distortion of value of the truth, he grows up and he founds his marriage and his friendships and all his business activities. And for all those transgressions, the father takes the rap. That's where the distortion took place. It's not the child's fault that he grows up with a slightly warped value. He just tested at his level. How good he can be at that level. The father takes them. If you bring up a child abused in every way, tremendously disadvantaged, suffering terribly, from a divorced and broken background. It makes no difference. The kid's brought up on a low level. But he's, not, he's only tested for what he achieves at that level. You take the rap for damaging the world. You bring up your child incredibly spiritually elevated, Jewishly responsible, morally, very high level. It makes no difference. To gain any spiritual greatness, that child at that level has to make an improvement. If he only remains neutral at the level, he achieves nothing. The fact that the world is benefited by that spiritual work is your credit. Let me try to make this a bit more clear. Do you know it says that on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur every year, the books of the living and the dead are opened. <laughs> Hashem judges the souls of all humans every year. The Kabbalists ask a question, why would Hashem judge the souls of the dead every year? By definition, they can't be any different than they were the year before. Right? Imagine a person's lifetime. So the person's born here, and then they die here. The next year they're judged. The next year they're judged again. Why? Being dead means you cannot do anything positive, anything negative. You just coast with the momentum that you built up in life. What on earth, or off earth, you know, could it mean for Hashem to judge a soul a year down the line after they've been dead? There's nothing done that year. They couldn't possibly be different than they were a year before. You see the question? The answer is amazing. The answer is the reason the soul is different at the end of the year is because during this year many things have happened that are the results of something they did back here when they were alive that only now playing themselves out. So the person had a child. The child had children. The children had children. Now there's 3,768 great-grandchildren in the world and all that all of them are doing is accruing to the credit of the person who began the process because it all began with them. Is this scary? It's 
seems kind of like a funny chain reaction because you could start off with like the Dam and Chava, and now at this point, all these things are happening that like Hashem is not directly controlling it. It's based on other people's Absolutely. free will. Absolutely, he's not con- free will. Is he gives he yields control? Read my book. <laughs> but let's make this clear. We go back in the chain of causation and blame only to the extent that it's their free will activity. As soon as you wrench yourself out of that process and make a choice for yourself, that, that it's yours. We're talking about a child unknowingly continuing bad behavior or good behavior because the parents taught him that. To that extent, it's the parents. Parents are the most potent way. You know, we do things in honor of parents who are not alive, grandparents, etc. Dedicate things. It's not sentimental. This is being done in the world only because they caused me who is doing this thing, so it's their credit. Not sentimental. It's not sentimental in now, let me explain this. You do an action in the world and you see the effect ripples on and on to the extent that the ripples are yours, no matter how far and distant, it's your credit. Here's an example. Sometimes you see a person does something who, and you see the consequences so clearly. One year in South Africa, I met a Hasidic Jew from Brooklyn who came to buy diamonds in South Africa. I'm telling you a personal story. I know this man. In fact, I told the story on Shavuot. And after the lecture, a lady came up to me to say, I'm his sister. <laughs> okay, he's my brother. And you, the story was correct. This man, his mother was pregnant in the Warsaw Ghetto. Just before the Germans killed everybody. She desperately needed to see a doctor. She managed to sneak out of the ghetto and make her way into the old city of Warsaw, where she found a lady gynecologist, a Catholic woman from the old Polish aristocracy, who treated her. As this Jewish woman was about to leave the doctor's office, this doctor said to her, if you go back into the Jewish ghetto, do you know what's going to happen to you? The Germans were closing in. She said, yes. She said, come and stay with me. So the Jewish lady said, I cannot leave my husband. So she said, bring your husband too. So she said, but I cannot leave my family. She said, bring your family as well. She went back into the ghetto and told her husband that this Christian woman was offering to save their lives. So the husband said, I cannot leave my family. So they took them too. They arrived at this lady's house with 13 people. Imagine the scene. She put them in the attic of her home for 22 months, including the time when the German Gestapo occupied the house. And for 22 months, she kept them clean. And there was no bathroom, no food or no water. She carried away their waste with her own hands and kept them fed and clean under the noses of the Germans. And all 13 people survived. After 20, amazing things happened. But after 22 months, she managed to get them across the border. And all 13 of them survived. And all 13 of them ended up in New York City. About 10 years ago in New York, there was a wedding of one of the grandchildren of one of those 13 people. And at that wedding, there were 200 people present, descended from the 13 people that she had saved. Children, grandchildren, and they went back to Poland and they found her. And they brought her to be present, old, old lady, at a Jewish wedding to see 200 people dancing around her. 200 people. Children, grandchildren. And during the meal, someone walked up to her and said to her, why did you risk your life to save Jews? And she drew herself up and she said, because I read the Bible. And I saw that when God was about to wipe out Sodom, Abraham negotiated with God. And he said, if you can find 50 righteous people there, will you save the city? And God said, yes. 45 righteous people, and God said, yes. And she said, and I hoped there were enough of us to save Poland, and I was wrong. Now that is something to be envious of, because they're all her children, and the children's children are her children. Five years ago in, in Connecticut, I told the story. A guy got up at the back and he said, I was at that wedding. I'm a grandchild. So you do an action, and it ripples on and on and on. To the extent that it's your momentum, it's yours. And therefore, here's the key. That result could be a person in the world with a level of free will that's not their fault. But it's yours. So here's the the key. Here's the thing to remember. When you, as Americans, because American culture and Western culture in general, the current teaching is you have no free will. What you do is a result of your genes, your chemistry, your inputs, what your parents did, etc. It's all their fault. The answer is, the truth is, it is their fault. What you're dealing with is their fault. But how you deal with it is yours. Is this clear? So when you... Here's a child brought up in a, a Jewishly educated home. Kosher food. Kid eats a kosher breakfast every day. Zero reward. He's doing it out of habit. Who's getting the reward? Some grandparent has sacrificed mightily to bring up a family with those values in an unfriendly world. In other words, where's the work being done? Where's the free choice being made? That's the, re- that's the reference point. The consequences which are not amenable to free will, there's no reward for that. 
I'm not talking about the reward of the mitzvah or the avera. I'm talking about the free will effort. Is this clear? Let me show you how far this goes. The big debate today in criminology and psychiatry and sociology and anthropology is this question. And the current, the pendulum is swinging very far today towards the extreme that teaches <coughs> that you have no free will. It's a function of evolution and genes and chemistry, influences. In Judaism, that's ridiculous. But the influences are real. Let, let me explain. I'll give you two examples. I have a friend who's a psychiatrist. Some time ago he said to me, can you please discuss one of his patients with me? He said, yes. Why do you want to talk to me? I, I'm not a psychiatrist. He's dealing with a 21-year-old Jewish girl who has a tremendous compulsion to steal candy in the supermarket. She's rich. She can afford as much candy as she wants. She's got a house full of candy. She's got a problem. She walks into the supermarket. She sees the candy. Tremendous compulsion. Why is he talking to me? Because he's now in court for the 10th time. <laughs> and the judge is asking my friend to testify about her sanity. He's a psychiatrist. If he tells the judge that she's legally insane, <coughs> she'll go for psychiatric treatment. If he tells the judge that she's legally sane, she'll go to jail. And she may die there. You're talking about a sweet, innocent, naive girl in a South African jail. Very dangerous. And my friend says to me, I cannot tell the judge that she's insane. She's, she doesn't meet the definition of legal insanity. She knows what she's doing. She comes for treatment. She usually controls herself. What am I going to say? Do you see the dilemma? The dilemma is this. If you say that this girl's problem, let's call it kleptomania, right? If you say that this compulsion that she has is out of her control, it's not her fault, she's got kleptomania, right? She's not guilty. Then one moment, who's guilty for any crime or any misdemeanor or any misbehavior? If you understood my compulsions, right? Any criminal can say you didn't understand the compulsions. Uh, take me. Man, I don't steal candy in the supermarket. I've got other issues. <laughs> but take one of my issues. Let's say you, eat, you see me out of control with chocolate cake. And you say, Tats, why are you doing that? And you, I say to you, you don't understand the compulsions. Mm -hmm. You see the problem? If you can admit that psychological coercive variables are real, forget about criminal responsibility, forget about free will, forget about... On the other hand, how can you deny that they are real? If you say, right, right, that's all irrelevant. She's gu guilty for stealing the candy because she... But you see, that, you see that the kleptomania is certainly relevant here. The reason you don't hang out in the supermarket stealing candy most, most days because you don't have kleptomania. So here's the question, ladies. Are we going to say that these coercive psychological variables are real and relevant or not? If they are, forget about responsibility. And how can you deny that they are relevant? Do you see the problem? Let me give you another example. Not far from here, about 15 years ago, a young girl was jogging through Central Park one Sunday afternoon. Five or six young men from Harlem attacked her. You're probably too young to remember this case. And they almost killed her. They broke every bone in her body, but they never stole anything. When the police found them, they told the police that they did it for fun. It was a Sunday afternoon, and they did it for fun. The case came to trial in New York. Look it up. It's an amazing case. And it caused a national uproar. Because the lawyers for the defense argued that these young men should be acquitted because they were brought up in the Harlem ghetto. They were so abandoned and brutalized and, and molested and uneducated and poverty-stricken with no role models that what they did was appropriate for their social circumstances. Do you see the claim? Well, if you say that's true, then which criminal is guilty for anything? Every criminal will say, well, if you understood the compulsion, the social variables, then you know why I did what I did. And if you say that can't be right, they're 100% guilty. All that cruelty in the ghetto is irrelevant. That's dumb. Obviously, the ghetto and the violence is relevant. You can see it. Ladies, do we see the challenge? Whichever way you go, you're in trouble. What's the Jewish answer to this? What? To an extent. They're still held responsible. Because they had the choice, despite their circumstances, to make a new choice. Wouldn't the truth be somewhere in the middle? Like, it goes back to free will. It's where they stand, so they're based on so it's... They're given their certain circumstances, and it's how they act within the Exactly, exactly. Can I map it the way we said it? You've got your spectrum. Where they're operating on the spectrum, not their fault. These guys are operating here. It's not their fault. The girl with the kleptomania, she walks into the store, she sees the candy, right? Compulsion, tremendous attraction. <gasps> Is that her fault? No, that's kleptomania. But when she takes it and walks out, she's guilty. Mm. What you do at your point of freedom? 
the young fellow stand in the park, right? The girl jogs through. The one guy says to the, well, the one guy says to the other one, "Hey, dude," or whatever they say. In <laughs> uh, let's go beat the girl. Other guy says, "Yeah, man." Is that their fault? No. That's how you think when you're brought up. In the, but when they walk over and beat her up, knowing they wouldn't like to have their bones broken, they're guilty. It's the same story that happened with Yosef and the brothers. Yes. What's throwing, throwing them in the pit. Yes. It just took one brother to say, let's sell him as a, a slave, and they end up doing that. Okay. I, I think every human misdemeanor or success is the same story. Oh, okay. Yes. So the point I'm making is this. Where you're operating, as Americans, you have to know this. Where you're operating on the spectrum may not be your fault. But what you do there is your fault. So when you blame your parents for your personality and your anxieties and your tensions because of your parents' problems and battles and, and whatever it is, or your siblings, or, or God, you're right. That's, and your genes and your chemistry, that's what puts you in this situation. But how you operate there, that's up to you. What you're dealing with may not be your fault. But how you deal with it is yours. And if this guy is brought up on the street mugging little old ladies and hitting him over the head because that's what he was taught to do, that's not his fault. Now the question is, let's see how he copes with that situation. <coughs> Again, I'm not talking legally. Legally, there's just two red lines and you fit in the red lines. I'm talking about the inner work. Is this clear? Any questions at this point? Yeah. Um, I know it sounds a little silly, but like, what if you don't know how? How or what? It, like, um, how to act at that point. For example, if you have somebody who's brought up only you know seeing the color green their whole life right. and then they see the color blue and they say it's the color green yes you know same like guilty not guilty thing. are you asking me this if somebody is not so unaware of the correct moral choice at that point that they have no option in the sense that they've yes. not they may be exempt never seen it practiced but before so they only not realistic for them right absolutely they may be exempt i will give an example the torah regards certain things like homosexuality as naturally beyond the pale what about a person brought up in a modern liberal society where there's just nothing wrong with that at all? Maybe you can't expect them to think differently. What about a Palestinian child taught to blow himself up and kill as a highly idealistic thing and that's totally education. Maybe he's not amenable to seeing it differently. Maybe you cannot hold him responsible. You, you, you with me? So like, is there some sort of like internal compass where it's like, even if you've never seen it, you know right Yes, now? that's an amazing question. And the answer is there's totally an internal compass. That internal compass is called the seven natural mitzvahs of mankind. The Torah posits an inbuilt moral sense <coughs> that you don't need to be taught. Not the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments something else. If there's time, we can talk about it. But there are seven basic commandments of mankind that the Torah holds you accountable, even if you were never told. And by the way, it's amazing to know this. If you examine every single society and culture throughout history and throughout geography, you will notice that every single moral principle has been always totally agreed upon. Isn't that amazing? Where they conflict the principles, there's no agreement. For that you need Torah. But principles in isolation, for example, in every single society, modern and ancient, stealing is wrong. I don't care if you're a sophisticated Westerner or a Papuan New Guinean savage. Try to take away the next door savage's breakfast and see what happens to your scalp. <laughs> Stealing is wrong. Killing for no reason. In every society, there's inbuilt moral compass. There's torturing a child for no reason is wrong. Not showing gratitude to somebody who saved your life is wrong. Honoring a commitment that you promised. Yeah, there's, no, there's no argument about these. There never has been. The problem is when they conflict. Can you torture a child to save many people? Can you kill one to save many? There nobody agrees. There you need a hierarchy. But single, where did this come from? The most rampant atheists today are totally convinced of moral values. Where they come from is a big problem. So they say it's evolutionary. But you can be the biggest atheist. You have a sense that killing is wrong. There's no question about that. That's the inner moral compass. By the way, it can, a few years ago I started getting emails from a non-Jew in Croatia. Brilliant 39-year-old engineer. He asked me the most complicated, lumdish questions about moral principles. You know, I have enough trouble with Jews. I, you know, I, I, <laughs> finally, I start getting emails from him. I have to meet you. And I keep trying to... Finally, I bought a ticket. I'm coming to see you in England. The guy's name is Nicola Muslim. <laughs> My wife put a police tail on me. Like, you know, I went to meet him. I didn't know this guy's following me. You know, <laughs> you know what's going to happen to me? He turns out to be an amazing moral individual. What happened was, 
years ago he was reading the Bible in Croatian, was not happy with some of the things that he saw, searched the internet, found my shirim, listened to every one of my shirim. He's now mastered Chobos Halvavos. He knows all the laws of Lashon Hara. He knows of Desla backwards and forwards. He's mastered all the laws of the non-Jews. He's figured out all the 39 subcategories of the seven mitzvahs. He traveled across Europe to find a rabbi to ask him if he was allowed to attend his own sister's wedding because it's in a church and he's not going to a church with icons and statues. And he stood outside the church. His children's names are Noach, Meira, Naomi, and... And he's living as a Noahide. He's living the seven mitzvahs of the non-Jewish nations. He won't dance with the ladies. When the guys in his thing, they go to dance with her. He won't touch another woman. His friend thinks he's crazy. And he's struggling. He's bringing up, he's got a 14-year-old daughter. She wants to wear short skirts. He doesn't want her to wear. Like, she, her friends think she's weird. But these are his standards. You know, so now he's thinking about conversion. If it's a big issue, he knows he's not obliged to convert to Judaism. So it's a whole issue. But he's a Noahide. In southern Tennessee, there's a Noahide church. You know that? There's a church of Noahides. They live according to the Torah. Rabbis go and teach them. They live according to the Torah's laws for non-Jews. So there totally isn't in a compass. And that's why you, we can hold a, a person accountable for murder, even if he was never taught. Okay, now there's a learned discussion. How distorted can that get? Okay, that's an interesting question. Any other questions at this point? Okay, let's take the next step. This point of freedom is not static. As you develop, it lifts. Right? You make a correct moral choice, you become a better person. Then Hashem sends you a harder test. Here I work in Kirov, right? It's outreach. So here's a young fellow who comes in, he starts learning. And one day he goes out for lunch and he's about to cross the street into the local seafood deli. Shrimp, crab, lobster boiled alive. Not good. But he likes that food. Next door is a kosher deli, but he doesn't like that food. But for some reason he stands and thinking about it, you know, kosher food, unkosher food desensitizes you, Jewish boy, you know. Stands there shaking and sweating for half an hour, eats a kosher lunch. Tremendous growth. A value has overcome a sensual temptation. Next day the battle doesn't last as long. Three weeks later finds himself eating kosher food routinely. No more reward. No more battle. Once you start doing a mitzvah automatically out of habit and you incorporate it into your regular routine, no more reward. It's just part of you. Of course, you get the reward of the mitzvah. And there's always the legacy work you've done to get you there. Right? When you pick up weights in the gym, I'm sure you ladies all spend six hours in the gym every day trying to approximate the good looks of an orangutan. <laughs> now you're picking up weights. Okay. Once you pick up weights and develop muscle, tomorrow you've got to pick up heavier weights. Because yesterday has become trivial. You play tennis, anyone? Tennis? Tennis is only meaningful against somebody more or less on your level. Right? That's what's meaningful. If you play somebody much weaker than you, then it's not, you know, you're a, you're a club player, right? You walk out onto the club one day, on the tennis court, you find you're challenged by a three-year-old. Kid walks out with his racket and his diaper. Now he's going to play. Okay. Let's say you win. It's not relevant. On the other hand, let's say you play the world champion, and during the entire match, you never see the ball once. Would you go home and tell your mother you lost? No, you didn't lose. You didn't play. <laughs> Is this clear? When you lose to somebody way above you, it's not a loss. When you win over somebody way inferior, it's not a victory. It's only where there's an exertion. But when you exert yourself and you can beat all the people in your club, you've got to play the other club champions. When you can beat all of them, you've got to play the national people. When you can beat the national people, you've got to play in the international. And the higher you go, the more the prize and the worse the fall if you lose. And so every free will decision moves your point of freedom. And you can lose it. If you stop exercising, your muscles get flabby. You can't pick up the weights anymore. So the point of freedom is not static. As you grow, <coughs> you shift that point. You become a better person. And then the ordeals are more difficult and more refined. Just want to confirm that we're making a distinction between like reward or acknowledgement for your free will battle versus doing a mitzvah or not Good doing Good question. Okay. Based on this argument, we could say, well, then I don't want to bring up my kids kosher because I want them to get more, like, I don't want them to start so high so that they can grow more, you know? Oh, let, but, let me reassure you that no matter how high you bring them up, there's always room to grow. <laughs> so, that, you know, that's like saying, I'm going to bring them up dishonest and immoral so there's room to grow. That doesn't make sense. Okay. So we want to bring them up advantage as much as possible because it's good for them and good for you and good for the world. They've got plenty of room to grow above that, right? So that's not, that, that's not a question. But, your, but your, your, your starting point is totally correct, and that is this. There is, is certainly a distinction. Every mitzvah has two kinds of reward. 
reward, read, self-development, and growth. Here they are. One set of reward for a mitzvah, one kind, is the cosmic effect of the mitzvah. You eat matzah on Pesach, the world changes. We have no idea how, and we have no idea which mitzvahs generate more. In fact, it's kept a secret from us. But the other reward is the effort you put in and the self-development, and they are completely separate. Completely separate. So let's say you do a mitzvah, totally inadvertently with no work at all. Very little work, very little group. But the cosmic effect is there. Okay? Let's say, are you with me? They're two separate things. The same works with transgressions. But it's extreme. Let's say, for example, you're walking down the street, money falls out of your pocket, completely inadvertently. Someone picks it up and does something very good with it. Do you get some kind of reward? Yes. It's, your, it's a product of, your, of you. Do you get reward for the effort of giving charity? No. Converse. What Someone comes to your... Sorry if they do something bad up there. I'm about to... <laughs> exactly. Someone comes to your door, you make a real effort to give them your last $10, and they go and buy drugs and do some terrible harm. Do you get damaged through that? Yes, you do. Why do you deserve that? Good question needs to be discussed. Do you get punished for doing a sin? No way. They're separate. Take another example. You go out for a kosher meal, okay? And um, you're really fussy about kosher food. So you check the restaurant, you check it out from all angles, you read the hekshire on the window, you call out the mashkiach, you measure his beard, you measure his <laughs> wife's beard, like, like you get it right, you know? You are taught, this, this, this is the most kosher, okay. You go and eat a meal there, and it turns out to be totally true, completely unkosher. Do you get damaged spiritually? No. Yes, you do. If you eat poison accidentally, you get accidentally dead. <laughs> so there's spiritual damage. Do you get punished for rebelling against Hashem? No. Two separate things. Converse. You're on a Greek island someplace, okay? And there's no food except the local shrimp. You know, like there's no... This happened to a friend of ours. She, went to, she was on a Greek island where there was like nobody Jewish. Nobody. And she's a very modest girl. She would never dream of swimming with an exposed kind of a, you know, thing. But there was nobody there, okay? No hope of seeing anybody Jewish. So she gets into a little skimpy two-piece, and there, Chabad mitzvah tank. <laughs> anyway, so now you're on, this, you're, on this Greek, you're on this Greek beach, okay? And you're starving. And the only thing to eat is like shrimp burger with, you know, uh, prawn sauce and, you know, cheeseburger, you know. And, uh, and you lose it. I mean, you never do this, but imagine. And you just gulp this thing down. Unknown to you. The proprietor of that thing couldn't get his normal ingredients that day, rode over to the mainland, and came back with glut kosher ingredients. Do you get damaged by the food? No, it was kosher. Do you get punished for the rebellion? Yes, you do. Do you understand? So there's two. Today I'm only speaking about the one dimension, which is the inner work of effort of free choice. That's the only That's the only question. Yes? Yes. So if you, each person has their own, right? Yep. And you're judging at your level. If you were at a certain level, you drop. Are you held that much more responsible? And if you come back to it, is it that one, much One second. Better? When you drop, there's damage. That's there called damage. being responsible. Right. No, by no, definition. Are, but are you more responsible than, than beforehand? Because you, let's say you like master something. You worked on a, a right. visa, yes. or you used to not do something, and now you do it. Yes. Right? So kind of your, you could settle here, and now it kind of drops. Yes. Right. I'd say, yes. And you're, you're more responsible because, because now you're a person who's failed who, who ought to know better. Okay. Conversely, a Balchiva, who's gotten there after falling, is m- more meritorious than a person who never fell. That's a whole, is that a whole debate in the Gemara, but absolutely yes. Can we add one more, one more dimension? Can we do it? But ladies, here's where it gets difficult. So stay with me carefully. Up to now, I think what I said is logical. You can see the, the structure, and you can feel it, I think. But here's where it gets difficult. So for the last part, let's just concentrate together. Let's put the microscope on the choice itself. Why are you grappling with stealing candy in the supermarket? Kleptomania, genes, chemistry, parents, etc. But why do you make the choice that you make? Here the girl walks into the store, sees the candy, right? Doesn't know the CCTV is watching. In the manager's office, he's watching the screen with his friend, the psychologist. And they watch the girl. Finally, she takes the candy and walks up. Manager says to his friend, why did she do that? Why did she fail that test or succeed? What's the explanation for the choice? What would you say? That it like, brings happiness in the moment. 
That's her motivation. Why did she get into that motivation? To like, in her mind, to get to a higher level of happiness, whether that's instant happiness or what she thinks is like long-lasting happiness. Or because she was weak. Well, that there's, was her free will choice. There's no answer to this question. Any explanation denies free will. The answer is, she chose. This is weird. In philosophy, this is called an uncaused cause. In Kabbalah, this is called the fontanelle. You know, when a child's born, there's no skull. You can feel the brain. Don't, don't try this at home. But if you press on the brain, you can actually feel the brain pulsate, right? As a, as a doctor, the first thing I examine in a newborn, put your hand gently over if you can feel the brain itself. Right? This place, which is where man wears tefillin, which is to reopen that bony obstruction, and that's what tefillin is, this place in Kabbalah is called Ratzon, which means will. Free will, will. Ratzon in Hebrew is exactly the same numerical equivalent as the word makor, meaning a source. A source, a point of origin. You can never ask for the source of a source. That's incoherent. It is because it is. Here's a river flowing. Why is the water here? Because it flowed from here. Why is the water here? Because it flowed from here. In the source, you can't, you can't ask why. That's where it begins. Is this clear? When you make a free will decision and you decide to go right instead of left, it's because you decide. Listen carefully to this. The Kabbalists say that a free will decision is the one application in the world of yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. How did God create the world? He created something out of nothing. Whoa, amazing. You can do that too. I can go right or left. I choose to go right. Why? I chose. I genuinely originated. No animal does. Every animal is reacting to a feedback loop of cause and effect. A human can step out of that. G give me a second. You can, you can cause... This is weird. And that's what your divine capacity is. You can choose something because you choose it. Now, many things you do are not chosen. They're responses, they're reflexes, they're habit patterns. But you can make a moral choice. And it's very weird. Let me share with you one of the weirdnesses of this thing, and we'll stop with this. This position here is so weird that all paradoxes come out of this. And I'll share with you one paradox. This position means I can face two motivations, one very powerful and one very weak. Free will means I can choose the weak motivation. Isn't that strange? Metal object, strong magnet, weak magnet. Metal object moves towards a strong magnet. Human being, powerful motivation, trivial motivation. Human being drawn towards the strong motivation. That's not free will, that's mechanics. A human being can face a very powerful psychological motivation, a pathetically childish and trivial motivation, and you could choose the trivial one. It has to be like that. But isn't that weird? I see perplexed faces. Let me give you an example. I will show you a person in the grip of an ordeal where one option is very motivating, extremely powerful, and the other option is absolutely trivial. And I'll show you people falling for the trivial attraction. Are you ready? Ever tried dieting? <laughs> Here's how it works. On the one hand, it's the way I want to look. Self-image, next summer on the from beach. <laughs> Relationships, like self-esteem. Would you call that a powerful motivation? Very powerful? On the other hand, there's this little chocolate wedge thing with a bit of cream and a small cherry. Ten seconds of pleasure, during which you'll feel like an idiot. Here you've got a life agenda that is massive and a ridiculous childish nothing. And a minute later, you're looking at a plate that is licked clean. Like, <laughs> like what happened? That was the stronger motivation. You're ridiculous. And you say to yourself, how can I do it? Just like one second. You know yourself was ridiculous. How do people do that? The truth is the chocolate is by far the stronger motivation. But because you let it become that way. When I was a junior intern in surgery, I had a patient who had Burgers disease. This disease is an exquisite susceptibility to the nicotine in cigarette smoke, a genetic problem. People who have this disease, they're so sensitive, they smoke, their blood vessels close down. First their fingers fall off, then their hands fall off. Okay? There's not one recorded case in a non-smoker. If they stop smoking, the disease stops. They carry on smoking, their body falls apart. This man was a highly intelligent 45-year-old engineer. He came into our ward with a blue leg. The main artery supplying his leg had been closing down. He had four black toes we had to cut off. And this man knew that if he carried on, his leg was blue. He knew that if he carried on smoking, we'd have to do an amputation. He knew more about the disease than we did. The man carried on smoking heavily, and three weeks later, we did an above-knee amputation. 
The next time I saw him was a year later, and I noticed them wheeling him down the hospital corridor in a wheelchair, smoking, on his way to losing an arm. Okay, now let's get this clear. Let's just get clear. What's the strong motivation and what's the weak one? Cigarette, leg. Cigarette, leg. And he thinks to himself, throw away the cigarette and leg, man, husband, father, walk, leg. (laughs) Or 30 seconds of pleasure during which you'll feel the cold hand of death. How could you get that wrong? I mentioned this to a group of doctors, and one is a vascular surgeon. He told me that he had a patient like this. When he lost his second arm, he had his friends rig up some wire on the wheelchair so he could carry on smoking. What is going on? The answer is, free will sits here. And the options make their presentation. The one says, try me. And you fantasize about it. Then the other says, how about me? And this battle goes on and the symptoms are paralysis while each side makes its appeal and it can go on for a long time and sooner or later you open the gate to whichever one you want whichever one you want strong or weak and when it gets in that's all there is until the smoke clears and the dust settles but it's up to you you know have you ever been to South Africa in Cape Town you'll know there's one beach there are two beaches one the water's warm in the other beach, the water is ridiculously cold. Like, life-threatening. You go for a swim, you put your foot in, two toes fall off, like freezing. <laughs> you say to yourself, I'm not swimming here, I'm just getting out of here. But you look up, look back, all your friends are watching you. You came a long way for the swim. You keep kind of going until an ankle cracks, you know, eventually a kneecap disintegrates. You know, like freezing, right? Eventually, the water's more or less around here, and you stand there and you say, I'm just going to go under that. You can't go slow, it's too painful. You say, I'm just going to go under that water. And then you say... Just getting out of here. What are the symptoms of the battle? Paralysis. You don't go up and down. The one voice says to you, just go into that water. You probably won't die. <laughs> the other voice says, just get out of here. And it can take a long time. And sooner or later, you just go down. And people could commit suicide that way. doesn't matter which one you let in. That's up to you. It can be the chocolate cake or not. It can be the cigarette. Okay. It can be pathetic and childish, but when you let it in, it's all there is. The Gemara says that when you make the right decision, you choose it. When you make the wrong one, you allow yourself an instant of temporary insanity. And in that moment, you do it, and then you say, I can't believe it. <laughs> Did it again. <laughs> Any questions before we stop? Yes. The way you're presenting it is, I think you're putting like a whole slant on it, right? A whole so what? on it. Like, you're giving a very clear perspective. You're giving us chocolate looking good. It's not, every decision is not that oversimplified. That's and true. I think, That's right. quite true. So it's, so let, it's not let, like, oh, it's just a strong magnet. We well, let, it. It's like two seemingly strong magnets because we're clouded by Yitzhar Hara, or there are other factors that are going to cloud our judgment at well, the time. Well, let, let, so. me, let me try to, if I may, let me separate two elements in what you're saying. One is that this example may be complicated and very messy, and I agree with that. So you have to find your own. Indeed, there are people for whom the cigarette is a much stronger attraction and they don't want to live at all. Absolutely, totally. And there are those for whom it's balanced. I'm doing my best to come up with a scenario to illustrate the point. Now, for you, it might be chocolate cake and uh, I don't know. But you will come up with your own scenario where you know that they're hopelessly unbalanced and a moment after you've done it, you'll acknowledge that. But you're putting your finger on another problem too. And that is very often it's impossible to sort out. And that is because, and just very briefly, free will on this spectrum we spoke about, there's a red line above and a red line below. Above the red line, there's no free will at all. This Meshach uh, says that Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, lost his free will. He became so perfected, he lost his free will. When that happens to you, let me know, by the way. <laughs> at the bottom end is also a lack of free will. A child, a purple person with temporal epilepsy, a person with a gun held to their head. Do you know if you murder somebody because someone forces you? It's murder. It's a total transgression, and the Ramab says you cannot be tried. The pressure was too great to go and help you it. That's clear. However, around the red line is a gray zone where it's messy, and we don't know. And it's very hard to decide. In England a few years ago, two children killed a baby. Two boys, 10 and 11-year-old boys, killed a baby. The court had a very hard time trying to decide whether they're guilty or not. Are they old enough to be responsible? How old do you have to be to be responsible for your actions in Judaism? 12 if you're a girl. Yeah, 30 for some things. 12 if you're a girl, 13 if you're a boy. How old do you have to be to be responsible for your actions in Judaism if you're a non-Jew? Well, this was a Jewish thing. The answer is 
Weren't you old enough? How old is that? Question of judgment. <laughs> and it gets very messy. Do you understand? That's where you go to great rabbis or great experts who can call those decisions when a boy with Down syndrome, 13-year-old boy with Down syndrome, walked into Rabbi Yashif's room one day. I heard this from his son-in-law. He said, Rabbi, I've come to ask you to tell my father to let me have a bar mitzvah. I want to read the Torah like every other boy. My father says, you're not normal, you can't read the Torah. Tell him, Rabbi, I don't have a bar mitzvah. Rabbi Yashif said to the boy, how did you get here? The boy said, I took a 25 bus in Bnei Brak to the main bus station. I took a number one to Jerusalem and I took a 33. He said, tell your father that's good enough. You see, there's, there's a question of judgment, and you're right, it gets very messy. But I'm trying to clarify the principle today. Any final question? Yes. Um, when both choices are very good, is that also a place of free will? Good question. If both choices are very good, and they're so good that it really makes no difference, you're thinking of getting married. Two amazing boys. This should happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> Two amazing boys are battling each other to the death over you. Right? I'm sure it happens all the time. Um, flip a coin. Flip a coin. In decisions where really it's, there's nothing to tell between it, don't waste time. Flip a coin, right? However, they can be better, they can be a good decision and better. And they could be irresponsible to choose the good when you should have chosen the better. It's always a question of judgment. Good question. Yeah, yes. Um, before you were speaking about how your, your desire or thought to want to steal or smoke or whatever it may be is different than what you actually decide to do. So, like, your, your thought... It may be. It may not be. You're grappling with that desire. You may give into it. You may control it. So, I just feel like sometimes they're so similar. Like, you, you think and you desire and then you just take. Like, there isn't so much oh, oh, of a difference. Oh, so you're so right. Yes. What, what, it, what then is what the you, what you, there about, like, okay. self-restraint or what are we supposed to be... You've just put your finger on one case where there's very little free will because right. of the impulsive behavior. Right. There's one of our great Spanish authorities, Romain Crescas. He says something radical. He says that almost nothing you do is amenable to free will. Almost nothing. Almost everything you do is a conditioned by long habit. And why are you responsible? Because many years ago, you subtly chose a direction. Many years ago, you smoked a cigarette, took a drug. Now you're hopelessly addicted. No free will, but you're accountable. Because you, there was a point. There was a point of moral failure at some point where you did something slightly. Now you deep in the, in the pattern. But there's accountability, and there's a debate about this, how long ago, how, how much control, and that's a very, very, read my book, you see subtle, subtle discussion, but you're absolutely right. It's very hard to know, and sometimes it takes a wrenching action to take yourself out of, of a pattern, and, you know, or therapy, or work on yourself to control impulsiveness, I mean, that's all. Okay. Let me add just one final, uh, is it too late, Jackie, just one more minute. Practical, let's bring it down to the practical. How do you deal with this, and how do you, here's the answer. Put yourselves in a situation where you have no free will. In other words, Kamala says like this. Man's walking down the road, comes to a fork. The one road takes him safely home. The other road takes him past a river where women are washing. You know, like they, and they're not so modestly covered. And this man knows that, I'm talking about a man who knows that looking at that sort of thing is not a good idea, not a man who thinks it's a mitzvah. You know. <laughs> so the man says to himself like this, well, which road should I take? If I take the road where there are no ladies, no women, what do I gain? I just get home. Let me take the road where the women are and not look. Because then I'm, I'm using my free will in the world. Says the Gemara, if he takes the road where the women are and does not look, he's an evil man. Because he failed the test. Because the, the test was not will you look or not, the test was which road will you take. You're walking down the road. There's a safe road and a road with a poisonous snake. Let's take the road with a snake to see if we can duck and dodge. You idiot. <laughs> You've got a bottle of poison. Let's put it on the wine next to the, on the, next, the table next to the wine to see if it's an idiot. But you lock it up. You're playing with fire. We pray every morning. For al Lodi Denison. Hashem, please do not give me any moral ordeals today. But why? You only grow through those. At Sadiq says, Hashem, keep the ordeal, keep the growth. Just don't let me do any harm in your world. And here is the practical message. For the rest of your life, choose the course of action that may not be dramatic, but is the safe moral option. There's a road with a moral test and a safe road. Why are you taking the road with a moral test? There's no thou shalt be dramatic in the Torah. <laughs> and here's the problem. Most of us, in moral ordeals, we, we fight. But the situation that got you into it in the first place, you didn't even identify you. You're choosing a job. 
Which job are you going to take? The one that's glitzy and glamorous and pays very well, but it's morally a little compromising? Or the job that's not so glitzy and glamorous, but it's morally superior? Those are the big decisions in life. Where are you going to live? Who are you going to marry? What job are you going to take? What profession are you going to go into? Those are the big decisions. They may not be dramatic. But those are the important ones because you, if you make the wrong decision, the wrong one, and you take the morally inferior option, and you win all your battles, you shouldn't have been there in the first place. Is this clear? Teach your children to hang out with good kids. The ordeals in those circumstances will be far higher than putting them in situations of difficulty, even though they overcome. Start yourself and everyone around you on as high and refined and clean a point of moral choice as possible, and then you fight at that level. Any final question? Yes, last question. Is there ever a situation in life where we would not have free will? Many situations. Some would argue that most life situations you have no free will. Either because of force of habit, you didn't even identify it as a test, somebody external to yourself is forcing you, uh, you didn't even realize it was, there's so many situations that are not amiable. And you're not responsible for those. You're responsible for the places where you, and although you shouldn't put yourself into them, when you're there, you fight like a tiger. You must say, Rabban Gamliel, one of the great sages, walking down the street, turned a corner and bumped into a beautiful woman. Like, into, he stepped back and made the blessing you make on seeing somebody beautiful. He used the opportunity. He wasn't looking for that. The Magister of Shiva used to walk in the street, and Magister used to take his glasses off. He used to bump into buses and crash into, you know, but like, that's what he did. But when it happened, he used the opportunity. Okay, we'll continue. Okay. Um, after that, I think all of us might need a glass of wine, um, just to uh, calm the nerves and focus on the next class, which is about getting high and staying high, um, but pun intended. No one got that? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so there's, there's a little bit of wine if you want to have a little high.